Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Lindsay Dietz alongside Randy Webb about what makes a great leader and more leadership concepts that you can use in your business or whatever type of leadership or supervision you're doing. Lindsay Dietz is a social worker by trade, but is currently the Director of Informatics and Customer Success at a healthcare company. She has a history of being involved in the healthcare and nonprofit world, serving the underserved population for more than 17 years. She began her career in Venezuela and has worked on many teams since then. Now she is in Phoenix, Arizona, and she has multiple degrees, both from universities in Venezuela as well as Northern Arizona University. She also holds certificates in infant and family health studies, as well as trauma-informed care, motivational interviewing, and behavioral health. She is an active member of the National Association of Community Health Care Centers and a member of their Health Care Centers Controlled Network, Task Force, and she has also contributed to the Digital Quality Summit and other national data technology-related work groups. Randy Webb is a therapist by trade, but has currently been working for the Washington State Department of Health in a technology training role. He also has written a book, which is available on Apple Books, and he is a lifelong student of bilingual education and linguistics and got into communication originally as a form of healing. This drew him into how the nervous system and everything attached to it develops and works. He has taken great joy in facilitating learning in multiple media with the goal of promoting individual, family, and community recovery. He also uh, works a lot as a facilitator for different groups that are helping therapists become EMDR trained and or certified. You are going to love this interview. There are a lot of deep ideas here about leadership and what makes a great leader and how this can help your team wherever you work. All right. I hope you enjoy the interview. Lindsay Dietz and Randy Webb, welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Great to be here. Excellent. So today uh, we've got kind of a double interview going on. I'm going to be asking Lindsay uh, questions about leadership, effective leadership, and really going deep uh, into this from a therapist and behavioral health uh, angle, as well as a business angle. And then Randy is going to be also sharing uh, wisdom throughout. So I'm excited about this, and so are the listeners. So. Um, I would say, you know, this is could be for any business or any organization, but Lindsay, uh, what do you feel is making a good leader? Maybe we should define leadership first. You know, Paul, for me, it's, too hard, it's very hard to define leadership from, you know, just one angle. Uh, I think that sometimes we made the mistake of just utilizing the cookie cutters on regards to servant leadership. We can talk about leadership styles, and that will be a little bit different. Uh, but I think that for me, leadership starts with the concept of a whole wholeness of the person, and you know, an integrated person. That that for me is leadership. Okay, well, that's good. So let's get into that then. Um, let's get into the styles because this could be applied to any sort of leader position. 
um, such as a coach or a therapist or a, a business person or leading groups. So it depends on your angle. You're right. It's very broad. So let's talk about leadership styles. Um, what are some leadership styles that you want to discuss? Well, I will start with the one that I like the most, uh, which is the servant leadership, and that's the one that I have been focusing uh, most of the my you know most of the time in my career. Uh, the servant leadership, or type, you know, the coaching style uh, leadership, and that's the one where I you know I feel like you have to or your your uh, approach to the person or the people that you're you know leading or even leading yourself start with you know a sense of service you know leadership has a service uh, a service toward the bigger goal a service toward you know the 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 goal of of the company or or even the goal has a group uh, but also start with aligning uh, or or balancing out uh, you know what are your personal goals? You know, as a manager or as a leader, what are the people's personal goal? And then aligning it with the companies, uh, which I know that is not an easy task, uh, but I think that has a has an ideal. Uh, probably, you know, I I like to think and and I have witnessed that it's possible. You know, when you empower people, but you're also able to uh, advance and profit, uh, help support them in the advancement of their profession. Uh, while you're also advancing the goals for the program, for the company, or, you know, for their own careers. Well, that sounds like quite a good way to be a leader, like a servant leadership. Could you take us more into the paradigm of why somebody might want to be a servant leader? I think that it comes, um, you know, for me, the servant leadership, uh, comes from also the perspective of what some of the author call the primal leadership, but more like an emotional intelligence, right? Uh, you're talking about a servant leadership, and that means that your priority is the people that you're leading. Your priority, you know, is not necessarily the goals of the company. Of course, they, you know, it is, but you're also focusing in what the people care about, and you're building that shared vision of what the goal is going to be or how we achieve it. At the same time, you also have this room of, you know, uh, liberty or freedom, you know, for creativity, because you're focusing into what the people, you know, uh, want to achieve. And then, you know, when you construct a shared vision, you know, from, from that emotional intelligence, from caring genuinely, you know, for the people that you're working with, then it's hard not to achieve the goal. Because everybody's part of it and everybody's committed to it. And I think that that comes, you know, uh, and I will ask Randy to chime in, but I know that it comes also with your, um, you know, childhood experience, your, the way that you were, uh, you know, related to your caregiver, maybe the, you know, the circle of safety, you know, some of those other things that allow you, you know, just to connect with other people from that emotional intelligence, a balance between the brain, the heart, and also the practicality of what the goal or the company, you know, is trying to achieve and, you know, that alignment between the mission and values in all different levels. That's really excellent. I'm going to have Randy chime in here in a second as well to kind of summarize what his um, perspective is on this. But from what I'm hearing on my end is instead of maybe thinking as a leader, as some sort of dictator who is saying, all right, guys, here's our sales goals. Here's our goals for the company. We need to do this no matter what you know, work 60 hours a week, do what it takes, do what I say, top down kind of commanding. You're talking about starting with the person, that person's personal awareness. And we're going to get deeper into that. Um, and then integrating what are the team members like, and then integrating with the company's goals 
to find a synergy in a mission and vision and not just starting with some sort of money or uh, achievement uh, as the main thing. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Well, uh, leadership is not authority, right? I mean, leadership is, uh, the way that I see it, is a role that you earn, right? And you earn it, you know, with that balance. I mean, and that it's a process that not necessarily uh, is born from the brain, but rather a process that is born from the balance between the emotions, uh, your own emotion, your own self-awareness, and their, you know, your prefrontal cortex and in the way that you're reasoning things. Um as I mentioned earlier, you know, Boyatsky and Mikey refer to an aspect of leadership as primal, but I think that it's just that that way that you are able to build an emotional soup. And to me, it's almost like a multi-level, multi-dimensional type of relationship where you incorporate all of that. And yes, yeah, it will become a, a, a soup, but you're leading, you know, from a state of genuinely caring for the people uh, rather than leading from the state of fear. Um where you're affecting, you know, uh, possibly, possibly, you know, the group uh, has a supervisor and have, you know, uh, instead of having the fear or authoritarianism, uh, you know, or, or a toxic environment, you're just leading from that self-awareness about your own values, you know, what are those things that you tolerate? And at the same time, you model the way to other people so they become also aware uh, about, you know, what are they doing? You know, how are they doing? How are they behaving? Uh, how are they reacting to things? And then almost giving them the opportunity to feel empowered by just taking the pause of, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm respected. I'm accepted. Uh, you know, it's okay to think differently and, you know, I can always come and check in. Uh, so I feel like sometimes it's the lack of awareness of leaders and supervisors that affect directly, you know, the opportunity to build a nurturing relationship as a coach or as a mentor, or as a servant, you know, within the relationship with the with their supervisees. Um, I think that it affects the ability also to offer them the positive circle of security, you know, that I think that we all need as human beings uh, to be able to create, to innovate, uh, to advance and to feel empowered. Very good. Yes. <clears throat> I think you're laying out quite a lot of very big wisdom points. So I, I actually kind of want to break some of these down. So Randy, can you give us two things I'm asking for, which is a big flaw in interviews, but here we go. Interview sort of what you're hearing so far, and then maybe let's go into a little bit of what Lindsay was talking about with the fear versus certainty and have us all kind of define and talk about those concepts under that. Absolutely. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Lindsay. That's delightful what Lindsay is bringing up from a number of standpoints, uh, especially as it relates to the kind of thing that our listeners are probably really aware of is how human beings develop. And so Lindsay made a reference to the servant leader being one who has a wholeness, is well integrated, is allowing or doing things in such a way that indicates that that prefrontal cortex, the so-called most human part of the nervous system, is, as Dr. Bruce Perry would say, from a neurosequential model standpoint, is open for business, right? And so in this way, the whole, the integrated leader, the servant leader is a person who is centered, balanced, secure in certain important ways so as to do the very thing that Lindsay's talking about so beautifully of fostering a relationship 
that is a bit like the nervous system itself, as opposed to top-down, as you mentioned, Paul, where it's dictatorial and authoritarian, is more bottom-up, like the nervous system itself. It's the, the result of that is being open to the people, open to the workers, encouraging creativity, encouraging exploration and innovation, and helping to foster a secure relationship uh, kind of akin to attachment. Lindsay mentioned attachment theory. And so, yeah, it's really resonating with so much that I think the audience is familiar with in some ways to what are the, what's the kind of environment that increases the chance that human be beings develop optimally and unlock their powers of creativity and innovation? It's just delightful. Yes, um, <clears throat> I agree. I think we're kind of uh, circumambulatorying or if I can say that correct, whatever, we're kind of going around this concept of fear versus certainty in leadership. And what I'm really hearing from both of you is it really starts <clears throat> with that ability for the leader to have an awareness. And I think to have an awareness, also a humbleness, that they're put in this position for a reason. And the reason cannot be for their ego or their personal... um you know, whatever their kind of like personal fantasy of being a leader. It's got to be about a collaboration with the other people on the team so that you can create an environment that fosters growth, not only with those people in the relationships, but if that happens, ultimately, you're going to have a more creative workforce. And thus, in the business world, you're going to have uh, more innovation, uh, more interesting concepts coming up. And more growth, right? In the nonprofit world, the same thing, and in the uh, therapy world. So, I'm curious about. All right, so I think that you know when you're when you're talking about fear versus uncertainty, I can help but just go back to the a center leader, you know, idea, right? And you know, being centered to me means you know a a, a well managed emotional stage, right? And it means. You know, we don't have good or bad emotions. We just have emotions. And uh, the key is just to be able, when you're a leader, the key is to be able to recognize which emotions are just surfacing up, right? And then not reacting to it, but rather observing it. And that, to me, you know, is a center leader. Unfortunately, you know, I think that sometimes due to lack of awareness or to reactivity or because we get triggered, you know, for any uh, event, you know, that occurred to us in the past, we don't keep ourselves, you know, not reacting, not observing. Uh, and that um, take us to a place where as a leader, you know, we we lead from fear. So um, it means, uh, for example, that I'm fearing that my supervisee isn't smarter than I am, or I'm fearing that, you know, they're going to create something and they're going to be, you know, um, replacing me or you know it's very tricky when it comes to the workplace and then as you talk about certainty i think that it's more as i mentioned earlier you know uh, how are you managing your emotion how are you see, observing you know what is triggering you and what are you doing about it how are you making sure that you're not reactive uh the other thing that i feel you know that is part of that uh, you know or the importance of that emotional stage uh as a center leader is you know, if you're able 
if, if your goal is just to get, you know, the company's goal and, and align, you know, uh, have a good team, a positive team, you have to be able to lead them with enthusiasm, but also with empathy. So how do you get that if you're not, you know, feeling that way? Or how do you, you know, nurture your team if you're not feeling that nurturing? Um, and the reason why I make so much or, or I consider this to be so important is because I feel like in an equation, the total result is the, is the sum of all the little pieces. And I see ourselves as a community and as people, even in my relationship with my supervisee, has those little pieces that make what Bozeman uh, uh, define as public values and public interest. is the total sum of things what make us as a society. So if we're not able to look into the little pieces and, you know, uh, think about, you know, what is what are those va- public values that we're creating as a whole? Uh, start with the inner person. Start with that, you know, managing emotion. You know, how are we doing it? Um, the other thing is how did you reach a synergistic rhythm you know, and cultivate a positive relationship with your supervisees if you don't know what's happening in their life or if you don't know, you know, what's going on. We we learned, you know, with the COVID situation that the boundaries between being a professional, a mother, a father, a son, you know, just broke down. We were all one, you know, during that situation. So how can we take that as a lesson and integrate, you know, everything that we have to achieve that well-managed days of emotion, you know, as leader. That's excellent. Um, Randy, are you okay summarizing some of that before I ask my next question, some of what you're hearing from that talk? Yeah, that's just, absolutely, Paul. That's just beautiful. What comes to mind is Lindsay was describing that from that particular model about leadership. It, 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 dovetails beautifully in that notion that before you're going to lead others, much less make, move the needle in community development, and I know that's Lindsay's background as a social worker, has always been towards being an agent of change in the community. It's a great reminder that before you go doing that, you're going to influence others, you're going to help foster these environments where people thrive and they grow and they innovate and they create. It does come from, as we were saying earlier, this place of of security, of centeredness, But it's a great reminder that if you're going to manage others and manage resources with individuals, with the workforce, with the community, it starts with you managing yourself. And and so, as Lindsay mentioned, the role of the prefrontal cortex that that has so much to do with delayed gratification, seeing the bigger picture, experiencing empathy with folks, uh, prioritizing the planning but it's it's it it certainly speaks too beautifully to the being aware of building empathic relationships, building a sense of safety first, but not and, and promoting creativity, but not valuing order in such a way to, to confuse order for security. It's fascinating, isn't it? Is And so it is a great reminder that things like the pandemic do remind us beautifully, right, that we are all connected, that we all are part of a community, that we really can make a difference, and that leadership seems to require you to get yourself in such a state, right, in such a way as to resolve your own history about what got you here. If you're going to lead, 
it, it speaks a lot about self-management. That those are the kinds of things that come to mind. It's just remarkable. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, interesting how these concepts of delayed gratification uh, leading to like long-term positive results in psychological studies with babies, children, and even adults are proven time and time again in, in workplaces. You can see this in the literature of some of the business journals I've read um, about <clears throat> companies that really invest in their employees and how their turnover rates are lower and the turnover rates are lower and it costs them less money. It doesn't mean they don't have boundaries. Like you said, confusing order um, with kind of like a, a gripping or controlling aspect of authoritarianism. So the order is that it, a lot of these uh, companies have actually worked on having the employees self-manage themselves. And the manager is more just there to help you flourish as long as you're meeting your rubrics. So defining what is required by the team and what our goals are is important based on that person's strengths. And then obviously, if they have a role in the company, they're going to perform for you. If they don't have a role and it's not working, then, you know, maybe they can move or transfer or change jobs. But there's not this whole cutting people out all of a sudden, just cutting whole divisions out um, for short term. So it's interesting to me how our economic model of quarterly returns for stock investors uh, that we've based so much of the U.S. economy on is driven by only short-term gains. It has nothing to do with psychology or cultivating a long-term company. And in fact, um, it's odd to me, though, that Warren Buffett, one of the best investors of the last 50 years, his company Berkshire Hathaway, actually invests, and he said this publicly, in a lot of companies that take their time and build the capital over time. So he's investing in a long-term strategy in a market where everyone else is frantically looking for that next quarter's profit. And he is using those psychological principles to make money in an environment that focuses and emphasizes short-term profit. In fact, even last week, I was reading an article, I believe it was in um, the, uh, what is that, Bloomberg uh, Business Journal, um, and also, I think in another magazine as well, but the article was saying that a bunch of companies right now, a lot of tech companies are cutting massive parts of their workforce, including Disney last week uh, announced they're going to cut 7,000 workers to get more profit from their streaming services. And they were saying that historically companies that do massive cuts when they start you know, that like they got the like the streaming is in position, right? They're doing a good job, but they just need to make more money. And they're now all the people they've been investing in to kind of build more shows and build more whatever. They don't need them anymore because they've already got some success and they're just going to try to make profit um, really quickly. It said long term, those firms actually end up being valued less if you look at a longitudinal scale. But in the short term, there is no doubt that by cutting that many jobs, Disney is going to make a massive profit in the third quarter. Um, which is coming up. And funny enough, I read further that there's a billionaire and his hedge fund that have gotten over $1 billion in Disney stock and have influenced and said, Disney, you need to hurry up and make profit on the streaming business, and we need dividends. So it's interesting that the economic model, which influences the business leadership, is based on a short-term return that doesn't think about the overall value of the employees. And then that trickles down to where we're talking about, back to the leadership. 
how if a leader is focusing on long-term return and gain and value in the company, which means less stress, less turnover, better productivity, um, <clears throat> more holistic outcomes instead of these sort of fantasy outcomes, like let's drive everybody into the ground. Let's get everybody working 60 hours a week and just don't care about turnover. They're not looking at the at the at the numbers as much as they're trying to at the long term numbers as much as the short term numbers because if you do that short term numbers will grow right but what's the overall cost of the company what's the cost of the reputation what's the cost of the workers and ultimately what's the cost of the product because if an airplane company is doing that i'm not sure if i want to fly in their airplanes right and and so how do we how do we balance that uh, with this leadership. And I think I think the balance is that companies that have been very successful over a long period of time, a lot of them have taken to this long-term cultivation of employees where they don't need to rule by fear. Fear is not an incentive. It's a de-incentive to humans. And so I think about that. Like you get a job, let's say, just say you're a middle-class job and you're in an industry with lots of options. So mental health or or nursing, or um, I don't know, working at a car dealership. There's lots of you know lots of jobs available. Who knows? Um, if I have a manager who's leading by fear instead of letting me cultivate my gifts and being more balanced in their leadership style, I'm only showing up for the paycheck. I don't care about this company. I've developed resentment toward this company, and I'm going to take my lunch breaks on my phone and apply for other jobs because ultimately, people, most people on the on uh in the typical neuro ranges want to have a pleasant emotional working experience but yet we talk about business it's just business it's not emotional right but the tenets of good business and building that really great innovation comes from what lindsay said it comes from the leadership of that emotional tenet of that person now google's been in the news lately for not having some good leadership. But back about 15 years ago when Google was starting up, there was this whole thing where they said, Google people, um, <clears throat> Alphabet employees, work from wherever you want, whenever you want, come to campus. We've got a gym. We've got a massage therapist. We've got coffee. We've got food. Um, we're happy to have you here whenever you want. Just, just make sure you get to your rubric of finishing your goals. And they thrived. By goodness, they just... They became one of the most profitable uh, companies in the world. Now, I don't know what happened recently where they've been getting in trouble from some of their employees and breaking off. But uh, it's interesting to think about that model was so open. It was cultivating the skills of the employees and saying, oh, if, you don't, if you're not good in this division, talk to another division leader. You can move over there. And they just took off from being a small company to dominating the search engine uh, industry. So, um, yeah, I wanted I've to see where both of you wanted to go. Lindsay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, what you mentioned, you know, what I'm hearing from you under that model, at least, you know, my, my thought were going around, but, you know, I am committed to you, you know, and I was thinking about, I'm committed to work with you and empower you to do a good job and fulfill your role successfully. But if you're not good for it, I'm still committed to you and committed to, you know, to work with you so you can find the path, the path that is the right for you even if it's not within our company, uh, but not, you know, doing it in such a way that we can, you know, come up with terms and, and people realize that that's not their path. The other thing is, uh, you know, with all of this COVID and, you know, everything that we have been talking about in the business model, you know, work 
it's probably the only place where most of the people have the opportunity to feel in control, right? You go in at a certain time, it's, it's a routine, uh, you fight traffic, you get there, you get your task done, and then you go back to whatever life is giving you, either if it's, you know, by yourself in your apartment. Or I think that why that's one of the reasons why COVID, you know, impacted us so much, because we less, we pretty much like lost the opportunity to go, to commute, to drive, and affected our routine. So if we as leaders, you know, uh, want to make an impact, I think that we can decrease the natural anxiety and uncertainty that comes from living a life that is, you know, that changed every day, that that is uncertain. Uh, and you can support a greater goal as a society by defining, you know, what what are the expectations that you have, you know, from that person? What are the values that we have? What are their values? I remember, you know, when I was going through my master program, somebody asked me, and we live by our, by our values, but do can you name it? That was my, my professor's ask a question and I'm thinking, well, you know, it took me a little bit. So do you know what your values are? Do you know what are those things that will not be negotiable? That and and that's important because when you are joining a company, you need to know what the company's values is and take some responsibility in the company that you're choosing, you know, to work with and understand. And if you're okay with it, then you go and that's the path that you have. Uh, but I mean, I know that it is important for you to know what the company's values are and what are your most importantly, because then you, it's like, it's a relationship. You have to be honest with yourself and it could be a good match or not a good match. Uh, But it comes also, you know, as a leader, you know, you can, you can support and serve the people that you're working with and, and help them realize that because sometimes they don't know, uh, but if I grew up, and I know that I'm, you know, I'm going to jump a little bit into the attachment theories, you know, like if I don't have, you know, uh, an organized attachment, and the people doesn't know if I'm available or not, or, you know, if I have an ambivalent attachment, because that's the one that I learned from, then, you know, it's a ripple effect. So how do you, how will they feel secure, or in control, or value, or understand that, you know? that they're doing a good job or not. Instead, you're just adding anxiety into what it is. And then, you know, they go home with that. Yes, that's a very good point. I want to delve into that because you've mentioned a few times attachment theory and circle of security. So could we define a little bit of what we're talking about? I know it's a very large theory and there's whole books written on it, but can we talk about maybe, Randy, if you want to jump into maybe what the circle of security is and how that can be utilized in the leadership supervisee position? Thank you, Paul. Yeah, so it, the circle security model is just a delightful way to think about how human beings build relationship. And as Lindsay said so well, ultimately, this comes down to relationship making and fit. And so if a leader is showing indications of one's own disorganized, insecure attachment, ambivalent attachment showing up, it's going to show up. I mean, these things are going to show up in, in your relationships. It shows up how you prioritize and how you see the big picture and how you concentrate and how you delay gratification, how you how do you do distress tolerance, how, and how do you model that for other people? And one of the beauties of the circle security model from Bert Powell and his colleagues in Spokane, Washington, when they have filmed caregivers and their children, you apply that attachment theory in what is that relationship look like? How well does the 
And in that particular model, the caregiver, or the, in this case, analogous to the leader, is represented by two large hands. And so the, the, the caregiver there in that particular model provides a safe base, a safe space for, in this particular situation, for the child to explore, to go and do the world. And when the child's really young, that space is not very big. As the child's older, it's a bigger space. And the idea is, is that that caregiver, or in, for our purposes, the leader, is supporting the exploration, the innovation, the creativity, the child's innate drive to go explore the human, the human quality, that innate drive to create, to interact, to explore, to discover things. And the caregiver there is to support that, be vigilant, be vigilant because that person is also providing safety, a safe base, right? So to celebrate that, to observe, be vigilant, and as the child discovers things and makes memories, has experiences, learns things, this is all about learning and developing, then when the circle is that the child goes out away from that safe base and then eventually invariably comes back. And in that coming back, here's an opportunity for the caregiver, for the leader, for the supervisor, for the manager to play the role of organizing the thoughts, the emotions, the sensations of the child coming back and completing the circle, coming back home in a sense. And so it can reinforce all that about the discovery, which could include discomfort, could include stressful, stressful things. And so the circle security posits that as a kind of model as to what is a template using attachment theory is its basis, becomes the template for all human relationships. And in the case of leaders, one could you can measure, quite frankly, you can measure the quality of any human relationship on how well has that person, as Lindsay said so beautifully early on, how well has that person organized thoughts, emotions, and sensations in such a way that it is whole and that it's integrated and there's resolution and there's a kind of clarity and the beautiful security that the person has inculcated that has kind of become a, a sense of the core self. And boy, you can surely bet that that is going to show up in a leader. And the more centered and secure that leader is, the more likely that that leader is going to promote and foster relationships like that. It truly is, as Lindsay said so beautifully, it's a question of fit. And the leader is in service of the development of the individual and development of the team, the development of the organization. And it's it's less likely to be short-sighted and more focused on all of this beautiful, rich development and experiencing. That is a really good way to integrate the attachment theory into <clears throat> the group that the manager is managing or the individual, um, leader, supervisor, whoever you are out there is wanting to build a nurturing coach or mentor relationship with their supervisees. And at the same level, they also might be managing them. So holding them accountable. And that is a tough thing because as a leader, you want to develop your people. But all of a sudden, if I just gave them too much freedom and they're all just sitting around having four-hour lunches and they're not getting their work done, I have to have a conversation about that. And so an interesting concept that comes up a lot actually in therapy with a different 
you know, people I've talked to and different supervisors um, in the therapy industry, what happens to the team when you have a frustrated leader? So what that means is the leader's just having a bad day. They come in and they're like, oh, this wasn't done. Why isn't this done? And they kind of have a little mini emotional uh, you know, kind of like not, I wouldn't say outburst, but like a little display. Right. And a lot of, and, 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 you know, speaking for males, I can speak for males a little bit. A lot of males, uh, will ignore the fact that they get angry and raise their voice because that's, we were socialized as that's an okay emotion, right? Uh, you're allowed to yell or get upset. So if a male leader is coming in and raising his voice, what is this doing to the team? Right. Just and you know, I get it. It's it's a valid emotion. He's upset, he's annoyed, he's frustrated. But if he is expressing that to the team instead of maybe his mentor, right? Or going to his manager and kind of having a safe space, what is gonna happen? And I'm I'm wondering about this, Lindsay. I really wonder about this emotions are contagious concept. So I'm the leader, I come in, I'm grumbling. All of what's going to happen to my supervisees? Because I didn't take that to my manager or my mentor. I didn't have a circle of security. I'm I'm throwing that out. I'm pissed off. I'm throwing that at the workers. What what are the supervisees? What do you think, Lindsay? Well, you you said it right. That's another concept that you know I have been exploring. Emotions are contagious. Um, but I will say I will go back to the values. There's no wrong emotion. You know, there's no bad or, or wrong or, or good or, you know, like, I think that there's just emotion. It's a matter of the management of it. Uh, but I will go back to the values because to me, if, if I'm frustrated and I yell at you, then that's lack of respect. And one of my values is respect. And it doesn't matter what happened. It doesn't matter how we feel. We treat each other with respect. Uh, the other will be integrity, right? I mean, and that's where you build your shared vision. And not everybody's going to... Uh, be with that, but you know, the self-management of the emotion is all, you know, in the male case, is even more needed because for competitiveness, if you're able to not react, manage well, you know, keep yourself centered, understand how you're feeling, catch yourself before acting, then leaders who are able to better manage their emotion are more prone to roll with those changes or with the you know like the uncertainty of having someone who didn't fulfill the expectation or didn't, you know, uh, complete the task that you were expecting, but at the same time, you will help rem- like remedy the situation or solve the situation, support them, adjust from that integrity, from that shared value. Uh, so uh, in the male uh, situation, I think that, again, it's a matter of how are you expressing the emotion. I believe you have to be courageous, but that doesn't mean that you have to be disrespectful with your peers or, you know... And it will go back. How how did you learn to express your emotion? I will go back to the childhood, you know, uh, trauma theory. Like, how did you learn to that an anger people will react, or you know, how did you learn to manage that emotion, uh, or when somebody lies to you, what is the reaction? How did you learn how to do it and be mindful of that, be aware of that? But I feel like we need more of that. We need people to be able to. To recognize that, I agree, uh, Randy. Any comments on that? Absolutely. I'm reminded of Dan Siegel's concepts about well, how can you tell that you have those childhood memories or there or those traumas that you experienced earlier in life, where you made memories growing up, have not been quite resolved? How can you tell in your thinking, 
in your emotions, in your sensations, and or in your behavior, you're rigid. There's one extreme or the other, right? You're either overreacting or underreacting, and or you're chaotic. You're swinging between the two extremes in your thinking, in your emotions, in your sensations, and in your behavior. And boy, does that really show up with, with leaders, doesn't it? You know, you as Lindsay talked about earlier as well. How can you tell that the leader doesn't have quite these does quite have these things resolved? And that can include insecure attachment. Is the person's blowing up and overreacting or being hyper aroused? You know, the stimulus may look relatively minor. You know, the, the workers are doing something, maybe they're not completing a task on time, or they didn't follow through with something they were expected to do or hold up their end of the bargain. And they themselves are perhaps getting activated and they're they're experiencing unpredictable or or greater degrees of stress than they expected. And so the the leader might blow up and overreact or not be available to support, right? To kind of dissociate in a sense or hide from the relationship. So those, yeah, those for me are fantastic examples of that. Yeah, so hearing all that, um, I wonder about some more examples of maybe an optimal way that supervisors or leaders could build a relationship to their supervisees. Anybody want to comment on that? I've got some ideas, but. Well, yeah. (laughs) Um, I think that I start from the moment that I'm in the interview process, if I have the chance to interview people, right? Uh, because sometimes you inherit people. You don't you don't have the chance. But, you know, during that first conversation that you have uh, with the person, I always ask, what are, your, what are your top five values, your personal values? It will be surprised how many people didn't know uh, or, you know, thought about it right away. Um, there are three values that I know I don't negotiate. So if none of those three values are there, then, you know, I try to inquire a little bit more. So I think that it's starting the conversation with those personal values and also what are their dreams? You know, where I know that sounds very cliche about whether you see yourself in five years, but, you know, I don't ask it that way. I would rather ask, you know, what are those three things that you would like to, you know, to achieve in the next three years? Or, you know, what are that, what, what are those things that, you will do without, you know, um, even if nobody will pay you for it, right? What What are those things? What do you enjoy? Um, that tells you a lot about the person uh, because the other thing uh, that you have to keep in mind is, I mean, you do hire people, of course, capable people, skills, but there's an attitude also that you have to hire, you know, that versatility, you know, the, the adjustability rather, you know, like the being able to adjust. Uh, and you start with that conversation. Uh, you know, where, where are you at in life right now? You know, uh, what are those things that what 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 drawn you you know drawn you to to be here today? Uh, I think that that will be my my comment in regards to that. Getting to know the person genuinely, uh, and eventually, as you become leader, I mean, you have to care about people genuinely. They they can call the bluff. I mean, they, they will they will notice if you're not being genuine uh, when you're when you're leading them. So that that goes part of the integrity, you know, being in, being transparent into you know uh, who you are. Oh yes, I agree with that. I I was thinking about 
in hiring that I've found in therapy, if you hire someone with a good attitude, they can pretty much learn anything. Because the good attitude, and what I'm defining is openness to new experiences, not being defensive, wanting to learn, actually wanting the job, which is an important part. Understanding their values is important because if they come in and they have no idea why they're applying for this job, then I don't really know if I want you. You know, like that's that's actually funny enough, right off the bat, <clears throat> I wrote in a job description for one of the jobs I was looking for. I said, please attach a cover letter to this that you thought about why you want to work here. If they don't have a cover letter, I'm rejecting them instantly. I don't, I don't just want somebody sending me a resume. I want to know why you want to work for me. I'm a, I, 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 I don't just want bodies and seats. I want a boutique. I want a unique business. So, and in that, like you said, it starts from the hiring. Oh, was I talking that time? Hold on. You uh, can hear me? You just got off. Yeah, now I okay. can. Yeah. So basically in, in the sense, it starts from the hiring. And one of the things is then once you are hiring, the, the supervisor not only needs to know themselves, but they need to figure out what is going on with the supervisee. You know, the leaders need to figure out who, who their workers are. What are their strengths? What are their talents? What are their values? Why are they motivated to work for you? What intelligences are their strengths and what are their weaknesses? So like you said, I believe in some of the stuff we were talking about previously, it's a relational stance so that we can help help them fit into the role, but also trust them enough to be able to figure out if they know how to alter the role in ways that you haven't thought about, right? And 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 maybe even to better the business. So I'm constantly amazed. I, I've taken a, I took a leadership course uh, recently, uh, last summer, I took a eight hour course with some of my administrative staff and it grew us so much, even so some of the concepts are so basic, right? It's like back to basics. A lot of the concepts we've talked about in this podcast, um, but now we've gotten so tight on what are your roles? What are your strengths? What are your talents? And what are mine? And what are we dividing up? And how do we communicate about those? That they are now, in a, I, I run the business with, with my partner, but they are innovating without us. They are saying, hey, we just came up with this new thing. What do you think? I'm like, whoa, how much time is that saving you? Oh, they said hours a week. It's saving us all this time. They said, would you allow if we did, uh, you know, eight more hours of labor to do this thing to improve quality? Because I said, hey, there's this issue here. I want to improve quality on this issue to make sure we don't miss this paperwork. They said, well, that's going to cost us. So they just said right there, that's going to cost us labor. We don't even have time for that labor. And I said, okay. So they they hired a mini virtual assistant for a few hours a week. It was just like they're doing it. And then it's funny. Uh, one of the managers, after taking this course, and maybe before they took this course, I can't remember when they came up with this. They have a stress meter. So every day they check in with the other with their staff, and they say, "What level of stress are you? Ten is worst, and zero is I'm fine." And and it doesn't mean like stress like in my personal life. It's more about like how are things going at work, but combined with the personal life, right? So if you got a personal stressor and then you're stressed at work, that can make you do a seven. And so there was a joke about uh, that. She says, I always want to know before you're level seven. And then she said to one of them, hey, I don't want to know when you're level 13, because that means you need to go home. You're cooked, right? And she has sent people home because of that. 
Um, and so that is like even better. It's like, okay, our, I'm managing, I'm asking what your emotional level of stress is today at the job, combining all of the things in your life and the job and the workflow, you know, differs per day. And so thinking about that, then the workers go, oh my gosh, I trust you so much. How many managers have ever asked me how stressed I am? They just said, get it done. Get it done. When I worked in coffee shops and labor and hospitality, it was not a matter of who gives a crap what's going on with me. They were saying, we need this done by 4 p.m. This has got to be done or else the customer is going to be angry and then I'm going to be angry and then the boss is going to be angry and then maybe we'll fire you. And there was no, what's the incentive to that? That I'm just running around like a victim, you know, you know, to, to their whims of whatever is happening. But in all of those businesses I worked in, some of them did have a long-term approach and they would say, Hey, there's an event coming up this weekend. So all week, we're each going to take a little piece of this work and we're going to prepare, and this is in hospitality, for us to have extra capacity. And in the one business I worked for, they would say, we're actually going to bring on extra staff just in case people are sick and just to handle extras. Where in a few of the businesses I worked in, they just were all about profit all the time. And so they said, oh no, we're not increasing the workforce for this special event, right? So then we're all running around. We're getting paid the same the business is profiting more than they normally do. And we're going, what is the point of us even being here? And of course, turnover. I quit that job pretty quick. And so did a lot of people. And then they, okay. Then I hear this. This is my favorite talking point. Nobody wants to work. Her, her, her. What a grand statement of nothingness. That is the most <laughs> pathetic statement I've ever heard. And I would say to every, every boss that has uttered this on the news waves, okay. Let's do this. Experiment time. Take away all your wealth. T take your lowest worker's position. Uh, that's full time. Take that position for six months. No access to your money. And let's see how you like how the, how the company functions on that level. Right? And if you don't like it, that might be why you're having the massive turnover that you are. And then you're, you're scapegoating and calling everyone lazy when, in fact, maybe they just don't like the working conditions. So, Lindsay or Randy? Say, yeah, I would say, you know, you brought up an important point, you know, and I have been bubbling in my mind also with all this reflection about fear and certainty. I think that, you know, uh, what motivates me to speak a little bit more about this is because we're seeing a staff turnover rate that has been highly increased, you know, rapidly increased. Uh, healthcare, you know, people are really finding their goals. I think that COVID brought us to the reality that we're mortals, right? I mean, and, and people are redefining and they don't want to do it. So as leader, I think that this is another reason why it, you are, you must, you know, take care of your people. If you want to promote more staff retention, you must care generally. Uh, and I'm not, I mean, uh, this is not a criticism for, for profit or, you know, non-profit or anything like that. I think that is more about let's find the middle way where we all these points will converge and there is always a way uh you also mentioned something very important to me which is you know you have to be ready be knowing yourself is also being ready that your team is going to push you and that's okay you know there were times when i mean i have a wonderful team and you know they were very dynamic and there was a point when i i mean i i have to be honest i'm like i didn't know you know, how to, but I mean, they were just creating and creating and innovating and, you know, and doing so many great things that it, it caught me 
there was a point when I said, okay, so I unleashed this. <laughs> like, this is something that I created. How am I going to, how am I going to react to it and, and trust then that, um, which is the other point of leadership. I think that the role goes is not like a one way street. You know, sometimes you will need to be, you will need to allow for your team to lead you. Uh, and it's like a dance, you know, sometimes you will provide the vision, sometimes they will provide the vision and that's okay. So it becomes a collaboration rather than a cooperation type of agreement uh, between the leader and the group. I think that we all, if you're doing a good job, you will, you will feel pushed. If you're doing a good job, you know, people are going to challenge you and that's okay. Uh, if you're doing a good job, you want people to feel empowered and and that comes with, you know, telling you things and, and being honest with you. But you want that from your team. If you want to promote staff retention and you want to, you know, when in the theory, I guess in my head, if everybody takes responsibility for their own peace, you know, we should be able to achieve that. But I know that uh, it doesn't happen all the time. And I have some cases where I, I did all my best, you know, but it didn't work out. Uh, and you will have those too, but as long as you're, you know, you did your best until the end, uh, and maybe that was not a good match, you know, you, you didn't have a, it, it wasn't what, you know, that person, um, was looking for, or you will also have people that will outgrew you and that's okay too. Uh, I have some of those too. Uh, they learn, they, and, and you want that, you, you want to be able just to promote that type of growth, even if it's not within your organization. I think that's great. Um, I'm going to get into the, what we don't know, we don't know section, but, uh, Randy, did you have any comments before we move on to that? What are your comments about what Lindsay said? Well, what Lindsay was bringing up has me thinking about, facilitators like those of you in the audience who have done group work of some kind, or if you've done some sort of coaching, like you think of athletic teams, one of the, one of the things that they do really well is that they establish certain ground rules about what's going to increase the chance that we feel safe. And then at the same time, they recognize that part of what they're doing, Irvin Yalom comes to mind or great athletic coaches like, uh, Oh, uh, Popovich, like in San Antonio with the Spurs, or the current Suns coach has this quality where they seem to have this attitude of, okay, I want to get an idea of what your strengths are and your values and motivations. I want to get to know you as a person, and we're going to create a sense of family here. And then in this coaching, I'm really interested in the development of the person and the development of the team. And in doing so, that means that I'm going to adjust what I do. I'm going to, I'm going to press buttons a little differently. I'm going to think strategically. I'm going to engage my pre cortex. I'm going to I'm going to focus on the relationship, and I'm going to focus on promoting a relationship where you build this with each other. There's a sense of attachment, a sense of family that way. And then, as if that weren't enough, I think what these really exceptional group leaders do. Greg Popovich is the one I'm thinking of, and Irvin Yalom comes to mind. Right for those of you who who've done group work, they do something really neat. They model these shades of gray. So they they find shades of gray and how they think and how they interpret, how they feel, how they sense, and certainly how they behave and how they lead. And they're influencing more than just a relationship with each one of them and with them with each other. 
but they seem to unlock their multiple intelligence, like their multiple intelligences, like Lindsay referred to earlier, and they adapt themselves. Like they model this openness that you're talking about. They model that openness. I'm willing to learn. I'm going to change what I do to strike the right notes, to increase the chance that you reach your potential, that your sense of mission is being expressed, your greatest strengths are being revealed, and that we're going to build this together. And they adjust what they do. And in the case of athletic coaches, for example, of course, no less true with group facilitators, they're adjusting their techniques on the fly. Like they plan ahead of time and they're thinking in terms of safety. Yes, of course. And at the same time, they're not just interested in the synergy of the group. Yes, they're interested in that. But they're also willing to change what they do to advance each one of them having a sense of mission and that they can't, like a village, achieve it together. It is enlightened. And I, I get reminded that one of those tasks can be, I want to find out who the leaders are in this group. I'm not the only leader. So as Lindsay mentioned earlier, part of what I'm doing is promoting the development of leaders and innovators within the group. And so that came to mind as you were talking about that. That's just wonderful. I love that. Um, I want to ask, you know, the idea for kind of as we're kind of going towards the end here i want to talk about what leaders can do that may have never you know worked on these concepts before and they, this might be news to them and they've been just doing it whatever way they've been making up the whole time and they've just you know been stressing and struggling what what are some things they can do to kind of help nurture this type of environment and, and empower themselves. Um, I was thinking about some of the things you talked about, about practicing mindfulness. We know, we don't know, what we don't know, uh, rediscovering values. Can you, can one of you kind of elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I think that I will start with, um, again, like you just said it, like we don't know what we don't know. So I, I think that I will start with asking myself, what are my values, right? And you can pick five. What are those values that I live by? And, uh, you know, after the, sec after that, the second question will be, what are those that I'm not willing to negotiate? And, you know, why, right? And those are the ones that you know that will be most likely triggering you. When you don't find those, those will be triggers. So that's the importance of that. And then the third, the, the third uh, will be, um, you know, what are your fears? You know, what are those things that, that you know, in your daily, uh, daily life or, you know, related with your professional, what are those things that you know that, you know, it will trigger you some way? Th those are, you know, um, very simple steps. Um, there are many books, you know, uh, that we can uh, recommend, but I think that, um, as you start the journey of asking yourself the question, you will find the answers. I mean, that that's, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, the answer to some of these things. It's just a matter of being honest and, and being, being, you know, telling yourself in the mirror, you know, the truth, uh, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, uh, another way, if you have a very good support system, is just asking people. That one, I will say, be cautious too, because you know sometimes the perception of, that people have of you is not by any means you know who you are. So you have to be uh, really careful. 
but I think that that also helps because if you feel like you're not that, uh, I mean, you you take it as a grain, you take their opinion, you think about it, process it, and in, in, you know, very honestly with yourself. And if if it's not, then you know, you let it go, and then you keep what you need. Um, that you have a super system. There are many professionals also, you know, that that can do that. Uh, we do help Ronnie and I. I mean, we we have the um, the ability also to help, you know, when it comes to, you know, putting people together or facilitating meetings or doing things, you know, you don't have to do it on your own. Uh, that's part of some of the work that, you know, we have been doing for a long time. It's just trying to get people to work together. And that's start with, you know, asking those questions. Um, so that will be my recommendation. Yeah. And I think there's, um, some other things, obviously, there's consulting organizations. You both run a consulting organization, by the way. Uh, people could get involved that way. I know that people run assessments. <clears throat> Some businesses have people take the DISC test, the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Um, we t- work on the Enneagram test and kind of facilitating all of these uh, you know, different types of tests so people can learn about each other and how to work together. And that's another way of doing it as well. And uh, really working on figuring out, do we need, you know, different technology? Is this technology removing us from each other or is it helping us collaborate, right? That's what are a our... very good point. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's I mean, a very good point. Yeah, so I feel like sometimes technology can help, uh, you know, really help businesses come together. Like we have a task management software that we use in my business, but... Uh, before that, we were struggling with, you know, old fashioned documents and it was just a mess and people were getting frustrated and didn't you see the document and that sort of thing, little things like that and kind of brainstorming. And one of the biggest things I've learned from one of the leadership classes I took was that we have to remember we're on the same team. We cannot tolerate team members or leaders, uh, the leaders, supervisees, supervisor attacking one another. If we are on the same team, we are on the same team. And that is a very important point. So if you get somebody in your organization and their whole idea is that, you know, like the American reality show, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to win the million dollars. If that's your mentality, you're not going to be good for the business and making those tough well, decisions to possibly. That is your value. Well, that's a value. But what I'm yeah, saying is if yeah. that's your value and you come into the business and I'm the supervisor, I need to make sure that I cut my losses before that. Correct. That yeah. kind of metastasizes mm-hmm. in the in yeah, the business correct. because I learned my own lesson by having a few people that I didn't really agree with on values stay in my organization a little too long, and I thought it was just affecting them and maybe me, but it, no, it was affecting multiple other staff members, and that is very difficult as a leader to have to deal with that because you want to see the best in your team, but at the same time, if they are not on board with you and they're not willing to cooperate, they're not willing to have discussions, they're not willing to have meetings with you and explore and open, and they just kind of give you you know, the bare minimum, that's not a, that's not a good um, environment for growth and or, and I don't mean just growth economically. It's not a good economic growth model, but it's not a good personal growth model. And that's the biggest part about this is that good leaders are growing themselves personally and they're going to grow new leaders, right? I'm right now in the phase in my business where I'm looking for who are the next leaders going to be. And I hear people say, and some people say, I want to be that leader. Right. And other people say, I don't know if I want to be that leader. And other people said, I definitely don't want to be that leader. But I'm going, okay, if the people that really think about it, which ones are you are ready for the challenge? Because it is a challenge when you start having to deal with people at that bigger level. And, you know, when people get upset, you know, and they want to know answers, you're the person on the hook. 
Um, and then mm-hmm. also bringing in human human resources, uh, bringing in new ideas, um, helping us have tools uh, to go to. And for uh, workers, uh, you know, a lot of companies do EAP, right? Employee assistance programs. Are they actually having time to take advantage of that? Okay. Not to call yeah, out one that's of my a old... <laughs> let's, let's not uh, call out my old social service agency I worked for. I won't say them by name. But uh, they gave us a lot of EAP benefits, but they were working us half to death and paying us nothing. And so, therefore, we have no one had any time to go uh, use these EAP yeah, benefits. Yeah. And I, I, I remember I utilized mine. I just blocked off my schedule. My manager got mad at me. I said, what are you doing? I said, I'm using my EAP benefits every Friday. And they're like, well, you're not going to meet productivity. I said, well, I don't know what else to tell you because I have no, they, this person, the EAPs don't work on Saturday and Sunday. So um, that was obviously a mismatch, but I was the worker. I was not the supervisor there, right? So, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. can I add something, you know, like yeah, I think that, uh, you know, in just going back to the, you know, it's a matter of also integrity and, you know, and modeling, you know, what you're saying, which sometimes we will find in companies that they, you know, they put a good, put up a good facade, right? Like, yeah, we have all these benefits. It might be example that you you mentioned, right? However, as leader, I think, and I have been in organizations like that. Uh, I'm not going to call any name either, but um, <laughs> I think that it's a matter of um, it's doing in the end. You know, had you said it, like we replicate ourselves, right? I, so, and sometimes we we don't, and sometimes people don't like the way that you do things, and that's okay. Uh, but if you are conscious and mindful and center into, you know, your own perception of change. And that means what is your perception of change around you? And that means how do you feel about technology? How do you feel about the, you know, when when the rules and regulation change? How do you feel about these services? You know, if, if there is another company that is competing with your services, how do you feel about the new ideas that come? How do you feel about human resources changes or leadership changes or you know, those are things that you need to be mindful of when situations like this arise, because then you will lead the way uh, and you hopefully, you know, keep your team, you know, uh, in a way, uh, I wouldn't say like shelter, but at least prepare to face any anything that could come their way. But if you're not able to see or determine, you know, what is your relationship with those aspects, you know, has your starting point, then it be gonna, it's going to become you know, uh, more difficult. Uh, and I keep repeating modeling the way, but you know, if, if, if honesty is your number one value or integrity is another word, transparency is another one, or, or just let's start with, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm my employees or my people know that I'm committed to them, then, you know, lead by it, uh, through the action of it, uh, beyond the emotional, uh, and that's the way that you will keep them engaged. I do think modeling may be the most difficult part. I don't know what Randy wants to say about this, but, um, <clears throat> you know, walking the walk, not just talking the talk, right? A lot of leaders, uh, the, the shadow of a lot of leaders is do as I say, not as I do, right? I gain this power of being the CEO, so I'm going to have wine at lunchtime and screw around what you workers do all you because I earned this, right? Or, or for instance, in the medical industry, they work the uh the people on their preceptorships are like sleeping at the hospital working 80 hours so the other doctors are getting to go home to their family 
And it's like, well, this is this is what you got to go through. And it's like all the medical literature I've ever read says you need to have sleep and a balanced lifestyle. And that you're yet we're putting our our DOs and MDs through these insane, rigorous internships in these hospitals and doctor's offices where they never get time off. Well, how is that good for anyone? So they're going to develop, a, a, you know, a stress disorder here. Um, so. I want to, I want to, I think we're wrapping up here almost, but I want to talk a little bit about one of you, you had talked about the adaptive information processing uh, network in the model uh, of, of leadership. Uh, and I, either one of you want to comment on that? Absolutely. So the adaptive information processing model essentially says that you, while you may have an innate drive to resolution and clarity, and it's a human condition. If you're if you're having difficulty expressing your strengths, expressing your internal resources, your talents, your motivations, your values, indications of culture, if you're having trouble expressing those in the world, then it's a good idea to do the work to get those resolved. So if you're having difficulty as a leader modeling, the very values that you most want to uphold in the organization and you really you really are committed towards creating an atmosphere that feels both respectful and safe and promotes innovation do the work like do the work on yourself to get whatever those memories are of suffering that you have in forming you not quite expressing those strengths and those intelligences and those values and motivations so that you have that on one hand and you may discover that using such tool like the Clifton Strengths, formerly known as Strengths Finder, is a wonderful tool to discover your internal resources. And it's very well researched by the Gallup organization. You may use a tool like that and identify them. But as the two of you were saying earlier, if you don't want this to be just about a facade and you want it to come from a place of congruence and integrity and wholeness, you know, yeah, model that. You know, we, if you're having difficulty modeling the openness to learning, the openness to innovation, the openness to developing other leaders, like if they're there, you have blocks getting in the way of that happening. And the metrics show you that there's discord in the organization and turnover is high and productivity is lower than you'd hope for. And if you're looking past it being just about, just the bottom line, that it becomes more about the survival, sustainability of the organization and meeting its mission, that's going to be best done with human beings. They're your greatest single resource. And it starts with you as the leader. So I get reminded of the power of doing your work, resolving that history, and and getting yourself centered. And it becomes more than just a facade or more than just paying lip service to developing yourself and developing your people. Yeah, you know, I think the phrase fake it till you make it only lasts for uh, a little while and possibly per- lasts best for performers who are performing on stage with guitars and DJ equipment. Because in a in an organization, <clears throat> you cannot fake it for eight to 10 hours a day. People will notice if you're off emotionally. They may not say anything to you because they're afraid of you. <laughs> right? Going back to fear versus certainty, but they notice and they don't want to be around that. Uh, you know, again, is the job, we, there's so many ways to make money in the world. Um, there's so many ways, you know, we feel trapped where we are, you know, and, and there's a lot of economic barriers, but there are so many different jobs out there. 
um, if, if you really spend the time on trying to, to trying to find them honestly and getting feedback. So p- workers want to work somewhere where they feel valued. They feel connected. They feel like there's a purpose to their work. They feel like their work is important. Uh, one of the leadership classes I took was discussing how um, if you want to have a leadership model, the front desk person needs to feel just as important as your top manager. And if the front desk person isn't getting benefits and isn't getting paid adequately, why in the world are they going to have a smile on their face and have a good attitude towards this, towards people that want something? It doesn't matter to them. They get paid the same whether they whether they give this person bad attitude or not. Their only fear is being fired, but they can get another job quite easily because there's a lot of jobs that don't pay that much. So how do you bring your front desk person into being incentivized, giving them breaks, giving them benefits, paying them better? I mean, we want to devalue them just because they might not have the degree or they may not have the same aspirations as other people on the team. But that is that is a toxic thought, right? And so that that does tell, talk a lot about that hierarchy uh, fantasy that we have that uh, somehow I've gained my way up the ladder. So now I can act like a total asshole. I don't need to play by the rules anymore because I'm the top dog. That sort of stuff will ruin your organization, whether it starts today or overnight. And I thought about this today. I thought, my God, 7,000 Disney employees being cut from the streaming services. I wonder if they are all on a Slack chat together somewhere about to start a new streaming service or a new video or making a new TV show. I, I mean, I mean, think about it versus Disney. I mean, they probably I mean, you know, they could have cut some people that weren't performing, maybe a thousand people or whatever they needed to do or laid them off or whatever. But 7000 people now don't like you. OK, <laughs> you've you've invested how many years into making them money and they just throw you out like that without maybe, you know, other things like cutting executive pay, um, uh, reducing benefits uh, short term. Or uh, saying, sorry, guys, we can't pay you for days off for the next year because we're at a deficit. Things that make us come together as a team that suck, but laying them off, now you've just created more competition. I'm all about competition. I think it's great. I mean, that's how businesses stay innovative. But, you know, this is disrupting how how many people's lives. I mean, there was uh, articles in the LA, uh, Los Angeles Times about workers that both got emails in the middle of the night, both being fired from, uh, was it Google the other week? Yeah. And that they're both there with their newborn baby sitting in San Francisco in this $4,000 a month apartment, and they both get laid off in the middle of the night. And, the, and then here's the best part. Their managers didn't know that they were getting laid off. Talk about a mistrust. Now, in Google's defense, I would say that didn't ruin the relationship with the manager, but it did ruin the relationship with the company. That person probably will never want to work at Google again, and they're probably a very skilled individual. And it, I, and some people said it seemed like the algorithm made the choices. It had nothing to do with performance. And then that, okay, well, guess what? Somebody just wants to create a whole new company where that isn't the case. You've just made enemies, right? And 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 in the world of IT, you still need to have partnerships. In the world of therapy, we need to have partnerships. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you're for-profit or social services, you don't need to make enemies. Not a good thing. So uh, I want to see any last comments here about leadership. I feel like we've talked about the person and all the way up to the top, all the way down to the bottom, and talking about that bottom-up approach with standards and rubrics that are not hidden, that are transparent, but yet um, how are we how are we showing up as a leader? 
And how do we want to grow new leaders? And how do we have a, a mindset of basically non-competition? And I don't mean that we aren't competitive with other businesses and I'm not trying to do better than other businesses and other podcasts. I am, right? John Lennon, Paul McCartney, always trying to write better songs than each other. Yes, I'm going to do that, but I'm not doing it hostily. I'm not coming after them negatively. I'm doing it to try to improve. Can I improve myself? Because this guy over here did that. Wow, I'm very impressed. Instead of saying F him, I'm going to say, wow, I'm impressed. How can I do better? How can my company do better? Right? And that is the environment that not only leads to innovation in all industries, but also keeps you sane and not stressed out and, and resentful of your own job or in your own position. And so, uh, that's kind of my uh, ending thoughts. This is kind of like the end of the show, the our end of the show reflections. Any any more reflections uh, from uh, Lindsay and Randy here? No, you just said it right. I think that it doesn't have to do anything with the other. You know, focus on yourself. Uh, you know, the competition is not against others. It's against yourself. You know, how do you improve yourself? Uh, the other thing, I, you know, the last thing um, I think that I will say is just leadership is a multi-dimension uh, multi-direction process so it's not one way you know from me to them is you know from me to them from them to me from or them has leader for me has leader and you know and taking turns uh into where we're going so uh definitely just being open to the multi-dimension of the leadership uh and you know being mindful and center great i love it Lindsay. i think you're going back to basics and i think that's where it all starts and it all flows from there randy what are your thoughts well, I'm aware, I'm aware, Lindsay and Paul, that we just passed the 100th anniversary of T.S. Eliot's famous classic, The Wasteland. And in The Wasteland, he describes a world where people are exhibiting all these fascinating difficulties with managing their impulses. They're doing things with little care or concern about how it's going to affect other people. They're just into the satisfaction of their impulses and their, their most selfish desires, we'll say. And we see the effects of the entire society. People are focused on just on the quick solution, the get rich quick kind of satisfaction of their impulses. And we all suffer when people forget that this is ultimately about sustainability and it's ultimately about supporting relationships and development of people. We're just past the 50th anniversary of Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, where he's talking about increasing stress and the acceleration of managing information and managing stimulation. And what are we going to choose? Are we going to choose to see the bigger picture, are we going to do what is necessary to cultivate what is ultimately healthy for human societies? And that starts with each one of us. And so I get reminded, if you're going to lead, get your house in order. Get your house in order first. I, I agree with that, Randy. And that, that harkens back to a few other discussions we've had about humans being part of nature. And the more we recognize and learn from nature, seasons, growth patterns, sustainability, um, you know, all of the things we can just learn from looking at trees and plants and, 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 and seasons and, and weather patterns. I know that sounds bizarre that I'm saying that right there, but you're talking about sustainability. The more we recognize our mortality 
like Lindsay talked about with the with the COVID. I I do think I have this weird thing. I don't know where I got this. It, it might have been Marcus Aurelius or or something. Uh, just to always imagine your own death. And if I'm imagining my own death and mortality, I'm going to make better decisions. On the days that I don't do that, I'm not going to make as good of decisions because I'm not thinking about this matters. I'm just kind of running off there. And so get your house in order, like like you said. And I think, I mean, that really brings it into the whole uh, a bigger realm, which is we're all in the helping professions. Um, you both as like consultants and educators, and also we all have therapy licenses. So, you know, that it, it, there's a, a number of um, ways to get help, but the work isn't just from reading those self-help books or listening to podcasts. The work is actually doing the work, whether it be journaling or, or going to a, a exercise or going to a group activity or taking one of these inventories or getting honest feedback from your team or whatever it might be. So there's a lot of ways to work, but the real work is being honest with yourself. Am I actually doing the work or am I just reading things and going through the motions? And that is something that cannot be faked for long. So that being said, uh, I thank you both for your time. Is there any sort of like ways you want the listeners to get in touch with you in any way uh, through your website, uh, Shine Consulting, or any other uh, initiatives you're involved in? Through the website will be shineconsulting.com. Uh, we, we're also in LinkedIn. Uh, you can find us there. Uh, I'm Lindsay Dietz and uh, Randy. Sure, and you can reach us by email at admin at shyonconsulting.com as well. And so, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. Well, with that, I hope everyone has a safe and peaceful week. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Kraus. I realize in the introduction I failed to mention that Lindsay and Randy also have a business together, Cheyenne Consulting. You can learn more at CheyenneConsulting.com. They do a lot of different services uh, with business and organizational development. Uh, for instance, business planning, business management, workforce and training, workflow, all sorts of things they can help with uh, at your small or large business. Apparently, they've done work with uh, all sizes. If you are enjoying this podcast, please share it with people you know or give us a rating on one of the podcast apps. I would surely appreciate it. As some of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. Together with some of my colleagues, we have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, which is a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to curb violence and save innocent lives by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up the conversation about violence in society, the causes, and solutions. You can find out more 
by visiting our website, violencepreventionhotline.org. You can join us by signing our petition, sharing the website with your network, or donating to the cause. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I am now an EMDRIA consultant and can provide 20 hours needed to become EMDRIA certified. I have EMDRIA groups going about three out of four weeks a month. Check out more details at counselingsupervisorgr.com or healthforlifegr.com. If you are looking for excellent EMDR training, check out EMDR Training Solutions. They are some of the best in the business, and they are now offering in-person and online trainings. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting healthforlifegr.com. That's healthforlifegr.com. Did you know that you can support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your own home while supporting local brick-and-mortar bookstores near you. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guests, and while these are based on literature they have read and their experience in their respective fields, these views should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. If you are stressed and overwhelmed, you can also text 741-741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. If you are a therapist and you have not joined your local or national mental health counseling association, I highly suggest that you do. There are plenty of forces at work trying to cheapen the reimbursement for therapists. They are not wanting us to expand our services and basically dumbing them down. If you are passionate about keeping therapy services available to the public at the correct length of service and with being able to use different types of modalities, please join the American Counseling Association and the American Mental Health Counselors Association and other organizations to advocate for your profession nationwide. Until next time, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week.